This episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. FanDuel's fantastic. Football's back. You know what? That means that FanDuel is back too. Look, I admit, I'm kind of ambivalent about football. It's not necessarily my favorite sport. There are issues. I get it. But it's fun to bet on football. Fantasy football's fun. There's no denying any of that. And you know what? FanDuel is fantasy football for everyday fans. It's new contest starting every week. It's no busted season. Something for everyone Lots of contests to choose from, starting at a buck. I mean, even a doofus like me can manage a buck. You never know. Pick a contest, choose your team, watch your score real time. And that is the way that you can do it. Listen, more than two and a half million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Super easy. So you can just sign up today by going to FanDuel.com. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Click the Join Now button and use the promo code Jonah. That's J-O-N-A-H. New users get free entry. How about this? Into the NFL Sunday Million, which is more than $1 million in cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. So, FanDuel.com. Sign up with promo code Jonah. Again, that's FanDuel.com. Promo code Jonah. Thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the podcast. And this episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast is with Bill James. Yes. Here is some brief background. My dad, who's a great dude, bought me my first Bill James abstract when I was eight years old because I was a nerdy, mathematically inclined kid. And he said, read this. I also love to read both. And Bill James uh, offered numerically based arguments and was also a great writer. So it was perfect for somebody like me. I was totally hooked. My two earliest and really most pronounced writing influences in my life by far. One is Michael Farber. Michael Farber, the uh, columnist for the Montreal Gazette for many years and went out to Sports Illustrated. And the other one is Bill James. And I have had Michael Farber on the podcast and it was wonderful. And this one was wonderful too, friends. Uh, really a big deal for me to get to talk to Bill. I know Bill a little bit. I have talked to him on a couple of occasions. One story, my God, oh, this is great. I can't remember which book. I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember which book it was. But anyway, we were at the um, MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, what uh, Bill Simmons likes to call uh, Dorkapalooza. And I got, got a box of books. I just, I'd had my book. It had arrived at the conference because the book was coming out like a week later or something like that. And, uh, so I opened the box of books or whatever. And Bill James walks by right as that happens. And he goes, what's that? And I said, well, that's my book, Bill. He said, I want you to give me an autographed copy of your, but your book. And I said, what? Okay, sure. And then I did. And it was very exciting. And, uh, yeah, he, his, his influence means a lot. Um, so we talked about the craft of writing. We got into tons and tons of baseball stuff. We talked about the proliferation of analytics. Uh, Bill, you might know, tweeted something last month, which wasn't necessarily all that on point from a political standpoint. I think Bill's politics are not necessarily the same as everybody else's. So I did call him on that. I mean, it wasn't completely a love fest and we, you know, did get serious a couple of times, but, um, yeah, really, really, uh, interesting conversation. I have to say the one thing that came out of it, what an optimist this guy is like really, really an optimist. You'll, you'll pick up on that throughout the course of the conversation that he's just somebody who just believes that things can change and that it's not necessarily as hard as you think to do it, which is wow, inspiring and cool. So yeah, uh, thank you to Bill for that. It was uh, really, really great. Uh, a couple programming notes before we get going here. So let's see, we've got sportsnet.ca this week. I've got a story on the Jays roster spots to fill for 2018. I have the fun report at si.com this week. I will have an article for the athletic coming out soon. By the way, what cool to be writing for the athletic. Wow. Stuff happening. Ken Rosenthal, uh, staffing, 
<coughs> As you can tell, I'm sick. I'm often sick. It stinks. Uh, Ken Rosenthal, college football staffing up, staffing up on the college basketball side. Uh, there's now going to be hockey coverage throughout Canada that was just announced this week, all that. So it was really neat that they asked me to do some stuff for the athletic in Toronto. And I'm honored to be part of this group, which is growing uh, very, very quickly. It's pretty great. And then, um, yeah, CBS Sports will be uh, Carry the 10 on Friday. Uh, by the way, there will be no edition of the Jonah Carey show on Friday because we got Hurricane Irma bearing down on the state of Florida. Stay safe if you're uh, there or on the Gulf Coast or whatever. Some tough times, but uh, hopefully everyone gets through it as well as possible. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, and we will do another uh, advertisement, friends. Policy genius, policy genius. Listen, life insurance, it stinks. It's not the most fun thing in the world to talk about, let alone to buy, but it's super important. You have to do it. Everybody needs life insurance. That's definitely how it goes. And if you have dependents, even more so. I got life insurance a few years ago when my kids were born, and it was a giant pain in the ass. I hated it. There's a lot of searching, whatever. It's money that, yeah, why am I spending this thing? I'm in my 30s or whatever. You got to do it. And uh, policy genius makes it easy. And less expensive. And if you're going to do it, this is the place to go. PolicyGenius.com is the place to go to learn about life insurance. Compare quotes from America's top providers. Oh, you see they're an amalgamator. That's what makes them great. And you save up to 40% on your policy, which is terrific. PolicyGenius has placed more than $5 billion in life insurance over the course of their existence. Simple, user-friendly website makes you work out exactly which policy is right for you and finds you the best price. It takes five minutes to apply for a quote. That is way less time than it took me uh, calling people on the phone. Uh, and uh, they are really, really helpful. So listen, it's super easy. You have any questions? Team of licensed experts are waiting to talk you through it. No call waiting, no pressing three, followed by the pound sign, followed by which department do you want? Actual customer service. It's really, really great. And they don't just do life insurance. You can also get health insurance. You can insure your pet. You can insure your, protect your income. And if you're not sure what you need, they will help you as well. So if you've been putting off life insurance or want to make sure your the insurance that you have is right for you, check out policygenius.com today. Save up to 40% just by comparing policies. Quotes are free. No sales pressure. Zero hassle. That's policygenius.com. It's life insurance for the 21st century. Thank you to Policy Genius as well for sponsoring the podcast. Man, oh man. Bill James on the podcast. Friends, enjoy this one. I know I did. James, first of all, pleasure for, uh, to have you here. Thank you, man. So, my dad bought me my first... Everybody has this story when they talk to you, I'm sure. My dad bought me my first baseball abstract. Uh, it was the 1983 edition. I was born in September of 1974. That means I was eight years old, when I, which I think has to make me one of the youngest abstract readers, I would think. The, uh, well, it's funny you tell that story because I, I didn't actually publish an abstract until 2015. I don't know where you get this story <laughs> about my age. People make that stuff up. <laughs> um, 
Uh, no, seriously, answer your question. Uh, at the time, yeah. my idea of who I was writing to was I was writing to intelligent adults mm-hmm. who were educated. But by far the most important people who were reading were young people. Uh, by far the largest impact of the book was the, um, the, the 12 to 15 year olds who, yeah. were, who were reading, or in some precocious cases even younger, uh, <laughs> and uh, who processed it in a different way. That, that, was, that was the real impact. Well, and for me, it was a crossover of a bunch of things because, I mean, obviously I ended up making career in words. I knew that I liked words as an avid reader. I liked figures as well that was there, and, and I liked baseball. And it felt like you could come at it from any of those ways. If you were a, a systems analyst and you were interested in processes, okay, this could be for you. If you were somebody who just liked good writing, this could be for you. And if you just liked the Boston Red Sox, that could be for you. I thought that was neat. The uh, baseball is like that. That that is what makes baseball enduringly successful. Is, is that if you're an artist, you love the visuals of baseball. If you're a, uh, if you like to read, baseball has outstanding novels. You like movies; they're good baseball movies. No matter what it is you like, baseball supports you. Um, so I do want to get into a little bit of those early days, but I want to. I'm going to pay you one compliment because I'm allowed because it's my show and and I'm going to apologize for slightly botching it. So I used to work, I used to be a financial writer. I used to work at a paper called Investors Business Daily, hardcore stock market analysis and I worked in a cubicle and I had a, a printout of a phrase that came from you and I haven't worked in that office since 2005 and I've Googled, I've looked everywhere for this phrase. I cannot find the exact verbiage. The gist of it is something that I tried since I've started writing. I, I came out of college in '97, so 20 years I'm in this business. I've tried to follow this advice above all as in my writing, which is essentially: don't write for the lowest common denominator. Flatter your readers so that they will come along with you for the journey. You might be writing a little bit higher than their level, but you're not being elitist. You're not being snobby. Just the opposite. You're encouraging them to come along with you for the journey. That is much more long-winded than what it is that you said, but it has stuck with me ever since. And I'm wondering how you came to that point of view, because the temptation could be, I want to get my message out there, I better make it as simple as possible. You didn't make it opaque, but you still made it a little bit on a higher level that, that demanded something of your readers. Uh, I, I think if you had been a baseball writer in the mid-70s, you would probably have seen the same thing I did, which was that... Uh, uh, writing to the lowest common denominator in baseball had become a prison. Hmm. Uh, it, it had become so limiting that uh, there just wasn't any way to do that anymore uh, without just you know, spinning your wheel. Right. But it's interesting, too, because the prose wasn't overly flowery. I mean, you, you had... Only in terms of phrase and so forth, but it never felt like you were trying to impress anybody with your words. That you could speak at that higher level, but it didn't require twenty syllable words. It just required concepts that demanded things of people, which was an interesting little twist too, where you could write in simple language in, in just plain English and yet challenge people. Was that you know in your earliest writings were you just always trying to write that way? Is this just your natural style? Did you adopt a certain style and say, I'm, "This is my Bill James style forever"? How did that come to pass? I, I don't think I ever adopted anything. Of this I, this is just the way I am. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, the uh, 
you have <laughs> you have to understand how small my ambitions were at the time <laughs> that I started the abstract. I wasn't trying to reach everyone, nor did I believe I would reach everyone, nor have I reached right. everyone. But I, I was simply trying to create a little market for myself. My notion was that if I could, um, if I could sell two thousand books a year and make a ten dollar profit on each book, selling them out of my house, mm -hmm. I could make a living comparable to what a school teacher made. Yep. Just by that was all I was trying to do, and the things that you cited come from that. I wasn't trying to reach everybody. I was just trying to reach a little niche audience. Uh, and uh, I had the idea that uh, people constantly told me that I would never make a living doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't believe how many people told me it, uh, that I like what you're doing, but you'll never make a living doing it because there aren't enough of us. Uh, and I reasoned that if there are a hundred million people in the United States and Canada who identify themselves as baseball fans, um, and I can reach, if I were to reach one-tenth of one percent of them, that's a hundred thousand people. That's far, far, far more than I need to make a living doing what I'm doing. Then um, won't have to work on a loading dock the rest of my life. And uh, so I, I was just trying to reach that little tiny sliver of the audience. It turned out that that little sliver of the audience was a great deal bigger than not only I, uh, the people who told me I'd never make a living doing this imagined, but also greater, much larger than I imagined. Uh, but that was a, an accident. I, I wasn't trying to reach a large audience. But. I wonder, too, if it was a little bit of a selfish thing. It's like you discover this indie band and you don't want them to blow up. And, well, don't, you don't sell out. You're not, there's no way you're going to do it. Just, just write it for me. Just do me a favor and write it for me. The first run of the book, I, I, I loosely call it a book. It didn't quite resemble a fully formed book. It certainly had the ideas. It was stapled and so forth. Uh, the, the legend goes it sold 75 copies. Two of the people that bought them were William Goldman and Norman Mailer. Right. I mean, I, I would assume that people fancied themselves like Norman Mailer and William Goldman. They said, okay, this is our secret club. Or, or like Fight Club. You know, what's the first rule of Fight Club? You can't talk about Fight Club. That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Another, it, it was remarkable how many of the first, uh, of the early readers of the abstract were notable people. Another was uh, Walter Hill, the movie director. Yeah. Uh, Very Hall. Lots of Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that was one thing that kind of kept me going in the first two or three years when I wasn't making any money doing it. The, uh, you, you know how hard it is to write a book. And you yes. write a book and nothing happens. Well, it's, it's discouraging. But what kept me going was feedback from, you know, those kind of people. So you're getting the order forms and you're reading Norman Mailer. We didn't have order forms, but yeah, we just got, we just got But you were aware of who you were sending it That's to, right. certainly. So, I mean, you are, you know, a young buck trying to make your way on this wild idea. And Norman Mailer comes in and says, okay send one over, what must be going, what, not what must, what was going through your mind at that time? Just well, why in the world would Norman Mailer want this? <laughs> and I think the reason uh, was uh, Norman gambled a good bit. I, oh. I, think, I think I think Norman's interest was uh, seeing if he picked something up that would help him uh, make a dollar uh, on in his in his bets. I think that, I believe that's the reason. That's my understanding. I also like the idea 
of kind of the progression of it because you were working at a night as a night watchman at a pork and beans factory. This story has been told many times, and we all have crummy jobs at some point in our lives. But sometimes it's not easy to get out of the crummy job. You know, sometimes it's inertia. Sometimes it's lack of skill. It could be all kinds of reasons, but we don't quite get out of it. Could be a, an office job which pays fine, but just isn't intellectually challenging. Could be another job where it's actually very lucrative, but you just don't like it. Is there a lesson to be drawn here about I'm in something I don't want to do? I can break out of it by doing X because it feels like a lot of us have that dilemma in life, right? And I think the the lesson is different for everybody. Sure. And, uh, I don't know if it's a general thing. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, so I wanted to ask you also about if there was a pivot point. You know, we talked about the numbers and selling two thousand. You can get to the point where you become a school teacher. Did you get to a point in the progression of oh, the 1980 after? I remember when this sold, when I reached this milestone, was there a point you said, oh, I made it. This is it. This is my career now. I know that I could do this. I know that it's sustainable. How fast did that happen for you? Uh, I, I, after the first year, I felt that things were moving pretty fast. Really? Okay. They were always moving faster than I thought they would. Uh, but again, that, that gets back to having very modest ambitions. <laughs> uh, because my ambitions were so limited and so small, the, uh, uh, things always seemed to be happening at lightning speed, and you know, you could go back and think, well, writing a couple of magazine articles a year isn't that big a deal, but it was to me. Uh, I wrote in, I started the abstract in 77, and in 78, I wrote a, uh, the preseason baseball piece for Esquire magazine. Uh, Esquire had a good circulation and made mm-hmm. a profile of me, and that, that was, that was neat, and that was, that was a, a big thing in my life. Uh, and, uh, Dan Okrant contacted, contacted me in late 78, uh, asking about writing, uh, an article about my work possibly for Sports Illustrated. And then that, uh, so that was, you know, you're just talking about a couple of years there. The, uh, and the article for Sports Illustrated hung fire for two or three years, which is, you know, frustrating, but it, rationally, what can you do except try to work through the process? And you're going along with these abstracts and eventually, the trajectory takes a turn. At some point, I don't know if it was a conscious decision what happened, but it seemed like your work shifted from specific analysis of the players of the day to history. And you've always had a knack for history and an interest in history and so forth. And you really can't talk about current players without context regardless. But the writing changed. Here comes the historical abstract. We're going to slow down the pace of the traditional abstract. What was that? Was it just getting burned out on, okay, we got to talk about Bill Doran, one more time. I need something else. No, no offense it, it to Bill was, Doran. It wasn't that. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I don't have anything to say about Bill Doran. Though. Uh, the uh, well, <laughs> we have lots of questions about Astros second baseman because I know about your love for Pichier, so we're getting there. <laughs> Bill Doran was a was a uh, a Royals coach in the for a flat time in the nineties. I forget who the player was, but Andy Pettit was on the mound. It, and uh, this player was in his first major league game. He, he draws a walk and he gets to first base and and he calls time, goes over and puts his arm around the player and, and he's talking to him. And everybody in the park knows that uh, that uh, he's explaining. Pettit has a, one of the greatest pickoff moves ever. Yeah, <laughs> and Dorian returns to the first base coaching. And not not two seconds later, the kid is picked off first, <laughs> first base, and Dorian is just standing there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm in a podcast demonstrating a, 
a, a visual of staring <laughs> off into space, which I realize doesn't work. But uh, one of the funniest things I ever saw in Baltimore. Anyway, um, no, I wasn't tired of writing about Bill Doran. It was more of a conscious realization that uh, um, to stay with your audience as they age, mm-hmm. age, that we need to look more to the past. Uh, but also, I mean, there's just more material there. I mean, there's just, there's just more you can do with writing about the... Sometimes as you get older, you have trouble keeping current. Yeah. I can't say that I'm exempt from that. I have a lot of trouble keeping current. Sure, yeah, but, but, uh, uh, but turning away from the moment was a conscious decision to try to stay with the, uh, with the audience. I'm also wondering about what, it was an obvious theme, especially in the early, well, maybe all the abstracts was, I'm going to, if not tip over sacred cows, at least see what they're about and see if we can get to the, the heart of it. I, there's this big assumption in baseball. I want to see if it's true or not. Um, do you have a biggest? Do you have a two or three biggest about, I was sure that this was right. I tested it. It turned out to be totally wrong. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of what I did. Um, there's so much BS around that uh, you can't help but do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you... Uh, the... Um, But it, it it must be difficult for a young person to understand the level of understanding that we were at in the mid nineteen seventies. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, I expected people talked about clutch hitting so much and so confidently that I fully expected that in studying the records we would soon identify good clutch hitters and and uh, we would soon produce and. It turns out that the, the reason that, that one team may hit 250 and score 750 runs, that another team may hit 270 and score 650 runs, has very little to do with clutch hitting. It has to do with walks and power. And uh, uh, so that was certainly, it's, it's such a surprise that it continues to be a surprise and continues to be a challenge, and people continue to step forward and try to prove that clutch hitting is a real factor in the game, and announcers continue to, to assert that it's there, even though no one can prove it. The uh, that would be uh, that would be one that maybe the biggest thing to me, and this gets back to studying the history of the game even in the seventies before I was really writing about it. Um, Stan Musial had once said that the prime of a player's career is ages twenty-eight to thirty-two, mm-hmm. uh, and I assume this to be true, and you study it, it's, it's just absolutely not true. Uh, players have lost about 60% of their value on average by the age of 32, and the prime is 25 to 29, and if you want to pick one year, it's 27. The, um, uh, that was very surprising, and a lot of people still don't get that. Uh, the, it's, you know, the, it is, it is surprising that, uh, 40 some years later, people still argue about when I was really young and didn't understand how the world worked at all, mm-hmm. uh, I actually thought that if I studied an issue and proved that something that people were saying was not true, they would stop saying it. <laughs> uh, it turns hilarious. out to be not true at all. So, <laughs> so and, but it, and it's still surprising that things that were shown to be not true 40 years ago still have currency at a certain level, although you know it's, it's now a minority view. Yeah, the age curve, if I just to put a bow on that one, 
there have been recent studies that suggest we might even be skewing slightly younger, more like 23 to 28, you know, that the Trout-Harper generation, right. whether it's because they play year-round, who maybe after PEDs, but even more so. So, I mean, the Musial theory, you know, Musial's putting forth this, this theory. Musial aged better than, I don't know, maybe any player, ever, one of the best players ever in terms of that. It's in, You always have to consider, I guess, the source of the wisdom, too. They might have some vested interest or personal experience that is completely an anomaly. Well, everybody, all players have a vested interest in, in your believing that, sure. that the peak of a player's career is later than it is. <laughs> that's, that's a very good point. Um, by uncovering these new truths, these things that you're not aware of, did you become more skeptical about broader societal issues, or were you always a skeptic when you were 10, 12, whatever, and this was just going to lead you down, you were just going to go down that path? No, I, uh, I always thought that most people don't know what they're talking about most of the time, and that is still my philosophy. Yes. It's, it's not a negative thing. No. It's not, it's not a criticism. I'm not saying people are stupid or anything. Uh, but it was always my understanding of the world, and still is, that uh, the human mind, that the world is vastly more complicated than the human mind. Not 10% more com- complicated, but 10 billion times more complicated. And because of that, although we are trying to understand the world from the moment we are born, uh, we are incapable of understanding the world. And because of that, we latch on to explanations for things. Most of those explanations are nonsense uh, in baseball and everything else. And that, that was... Uh, I had to do something different because that deep-seated belief that most people are full of crap most of the time, uh, is a, a barrier to you if you're trying to work in any established field. Uh, if you go into academia, uh, you will be celebrated if you make, uh, if you realize things that other people have not realized. Mm-hmm. And I think I could have survived and could have done okay as an academic. But if you walk around all the time saying people don't know what you're talking about, you uh, uh, you make more enemies than than progress. Uh, so the uh, I had to do. I feel 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 felt then and feel now that I could never succeed in an established uh, market where I had to please people in order to move up in the world. I had to be able to chart my own path and move up in the world. It also sounds like you have to develop a little bit of a thick skin. I don't know. I, I fancy myself a slightly sensitive guy. I try with criticism. I don't know that I'm great at it. Here, here comes people. Here come people saying this guy's a heretic. He's no nuts because they're protecting their turf, or maybe they just believe whatever they believe. And you know, in social media in the '70s or the '80s or even the '90s, but certainly you're aware of these criticisms. You're aware of people throwing stones and saying this guy's full of it. Did that ever get to you, or you just said, "Ah, oh, it goes to the territory." Well, yeah, it's 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 impossible to explain. I have, uh, uh, I am at one time hypersensitive, and I try to avoid offending people all the time, often by doing ridiculous things, such as uh, as that. You know, I, I should assert myself, and I don't because I'm wary of of offending people. Interesting. The uh, but. Uh, I try all the time to avoid offending people, but I'm just terrible at it. Uh, 
the uh, I, I, did, I have I, uh, I I grew up uh, in my childhood. I walked around insulting people and being insulted by them uh, all the time. Uh, I don't, I'm not proud of it, you know, but that is the way I grew up. I, I grew up uh, uh, not throwing rocks or throwing fists, but throwing full verbal assaults at everybody I knew all the time. Teachers, uh, uh, the uh, storekeepers, whoever whoever was there, and and taking fire in return. The uh, and I didn't have any understanding of this. I just thought this was the normal way that everybody was. Uh, it wasn't, but it was the way I was. Uh, the uh, and it was the way I was raised. The um, and uh, so that prepared me for the uh, for the position I was in in the late seventies and early eighties when the baseball establishment thought that I was uh, a lunatic and would tell me so quite a quite often. Uh, there was a moment about 1982 when 95% of the, of the baseball world thought I was nuts and would tell me so, and the other 5% thought I was uh, some sort of um, prophet. <laughs> and uh, and I thought, gee, 5% of people agree with me. That's amazing. It's <laughs> <laughs> very optimistic. Hey, football's back, which means that fantasy football is back, which means that FanDuel is back with great ways to play fantasy football. Listen, it's fantasy football for everyday fans. It's new contests starting every week. No busted seasons. It's something for everyone. It's lots of contests to choose from, and it starts at a buck per contest. Daily fantasy sports, it'll suck you in, man. It's great. It's a lot of fun. I got to admit, and uh, it's certainly fun for baseball and basketball, but maybe nothing matches it when it comes to football. You pick a contest. You choose your team. You watch your score real time. It's great. It's exciting. You can win. It's cool. More than 2.5 million players have already won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. So you sign up today by going to FanDuel.com and you click the Join Now button and you use the promo code Jonah. That's J-O-N-A-H. What a coincidence. That's also my name. Huh, who knew? New users can get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million, which is more than $1 million in cash prizes. When you make your first deposit on FanDuel, just visit FanDuel.com and sign up with the promo code Jonah. That's FanDuel.com, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com, promo code Jonah. Thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the podcast. Did having people like Pete Palmer, you know, roughly contemporaries, posit similar theories, did that give you any kind of confidence to say, okay, I feel like I'm making strides, I feel like I'm saying important stuff, but at least I have some other people who are roughly on the same plane as me, or were you rivals of people like that? How, how did that go down? No, I, I always avoided being being rivals of okay. any, anyone if I could. Mm-hmm. The uh, I, I don't know if you know Pete Palmer, but Pete, Pete is like the, the the kindest and sweetest person you would ever meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, he's very um, and but also he's he, he's he's sort of he's not at all like me. The uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, I realize now that some of the things that I said about Pete, he didn't always take well, but mm-hmm. I always meant them well. The, uh, um, the, uh, and, uh, it wouldn't have done me any good to, uh, 
to uh, engage in a competition with the other people who were right. uh, who were trying to study baseball in the way that I was, and I, I always understood that. I always understood that we've got to be in this together, or we're not going to make any progress. And then, at a certain point in time, you start taking on helpers, interns, assistants, whatever you want to say, and a couple of them have gone on to prominence. I'm sure the basic reason that you would bring people in would be, I need help. I have a lot of stuff to go through, and that would be fine. But from the other person's perspective, when you know, a kid like Bob Nair comes in and, and, and volunteers and so forth, and then it goes out in the world and starts to propagate some of the same ideas in their own style of prose and so forth, was that gratifying for you? Was it nothing in particular for you? Because now here comes another generation raised on your work, sometimes working directly with you, and, and oh, turns out they can make a living off of this thing too. Yeah, and I had no understanding that that would happen before it did. Hmm. So it was a complete surprise. The uh, no, it's great that Rob's had a had a had a very successful career at a lot of different places. The uh, and uh, it's great that John Sickles has gone on, and uh, to, I, I'm very pleased by that. Mm -hmm. The uh, I, I'm not good at, at supervising people, and I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure has told you that. If, uh, Rob is not good at being supervised, so that sounds about right. Well, that, we worked out well that way. Yeah. The uh, uh, the uh, uh, I don't want to worry about what anybody else is doing at any given moment, and. Yeah. A lot of my good fortune in life has been from working with John Dewan, who loves to supervise people and is very, very good at it. Mm -hmm. And I had to have a partner like that, or I couldn't have survived because I'm terrible at it. Yeah, it's quite amazing. I mean, I read you. That I, when I read Rob, I can remember thinking, oh, okay, so not only is this possible, but you can write on the Internet. That if you, I went to journalism school. I thought, well, okay. I'd like to write about sports. I'd like it to be somewhat analytical. I have no idea how to do that. The local sports columnist is going to be there until they're 95 years old. I'm going to be writing assistant, assistant, assistant field hockey. No disrespect to field hockey. I don't want to do it. And then with Rob, it was, here comes a template that you could write about this stuff on the Internet. And the Internet seemed to open doors. You know, baseball prospectus becomes a thing. It's a think tank, and nobody's reading it. And then quite a few people are reading it, and, and it progresses in that way. You just said you didn't anticipate the rise of other generations. Right. I, I'm assuming that uh, prospectus, everything that followed, was uh, came as oh, what's this kind of thing to you too? I would guess. Right. Uh, my whole career, it, I, I'm actually just baffled by people who talk about uh, opportunity only knocks once. Uh, my whole career, beginning even when I was unpopular, uh, has consist of nothing but people throwing opportunities at me huh. far faster than I can ever manage them. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't been able, to, if I've been able to successfully take advantage of 1% of the opportunities, not that I've seen, but opportunities that have been thrust in my face, opportunities that have been pitched at me like softballs, if I could have been able to take advantage of 1% of them, I'd, I'd be a billionaire. <laughs> uh, the... Uh, but a, a career uh, is a matter of of continuing to find new doors to open after you know you do the abstract for a while and it's hot for a while and then that's eh, uh, people have kind of done it so you have to do something else. I haven't been as good at that as you are. I think I, I haven't been as good nice. as moving from uh, 
from one opportunity to another to another as uh, uh, you know Peter Gavins or 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 uh, uh, yourself or or other people to help the profession. But I've I've always been good enough at it to to keep moving. You know, I've always been able to keep working, keep keep alive. And you talked about working within a structure and how difficult that could be. And of course, the ultimate was when the Boston Red Sox approached you. And after all these years of not doing that, you decided to do it. I'm going to take a guess and say that the Red Sox probably offered you an opportunity to do your own thing and not to have somebody, you know, hovering over you and so forth. Were those the terms that led to you saying yes? Or was it just, oh, it's the Red Sox. This is cool. I'm going to do this. Uh, the key thing was I had, had the opportunity to work with teams before. Yeah. Teams had approached me before and said, would you like to work with us? The thing is, they had no understanding of, who, of what I was doing. Uh, so, you know, a team would approach me and say, uh, we'd like you to figure some statistics about this. Uh, you know, that's really not what I do. Um, you worked on arbitration cases in the 80s. You worked on Tim Raines' arbitration I did. Which was a lot of fun. Of course I know that. Yeah. The, uh, the, yeah, uh, thank you for your help in getting Tim Raines into all that. Yes! All that crap. Very excited. Yeah, that's great. I, I, uh, I, I, I've written this story before. I'm, I'm sure you've heard, heard of it. Maybe some of your readers haven't. It was a, it was a long hearing. Somebody was very long-winded and usually you have about an hour and then you break. But for some reason this hearing went off like two and a half hours. Hmm. And I was sipping water all the time then as I am now. And so, uh, the, the, as soon as there was a break, uh, I began Looking around for the for a restroom, and uh, the uh, uh, and Tim Raines did this, the same thing, and, and I found the bathroom before he did. So I got to the bathroom where I was standing at a trough, uh, and and uh, which if you have any women viewers, they won't understand it. There are troughs in men's bath in men's bathrooms. Anyway, and, and uh, Tim Raines pulled up beside me, and I said, "Ah, oh, years from now, I'll be able to tell my grandkids that I beat Tim Raines in a foot race." <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Tim laughed so hard that he almost peed on my face. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, it's not that funny line, but I've always, I always rooted for Tim just because of that one, one moment we had. He's a very uh, happy fellow. Anyway, so returning to the Red Sox, this was an opportunity where it sounds like they knew what you were about in a way that the Schlemiels did not, and so they could better use your skills than you thought you could be more useful. Is that what it came down to? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the talking to... Uh, well, first of all, I was kind of... Uh, I was a little in the doldrums anyway. It's sort of looking for, you know, another direction. Mm-hmm. The um, and uh, I talked and I got a call from Theo, who was young, and I talked to him and realized that oh, he grew like you. He, he's about your age, I think. He, yeah. He grew up. He grew up reading my stuff from a young age, as you did, and he understood what I was saying. John Henry's a. Uh, analytical person and understood exactly what I was saying and uh, so I realized oh I can work with these guys that was that was different because I just you know there were first people in baseball that I had known that I could work with although there had I, well I, that's not literally true there had been a couple of a few people before that I could work with um, once you get into once you start doing that once you're on that path what do you discover about baseball on the inside that you did not know about on the outside uh, a great deal. I was really astonished by how much I didn't know, uh, and a lot of it has sort of leaked out over the over the years. Uh, 
the biggest thing that you, you really cannot understand unless you're on the inside is how many people it takes to win a championship. You, you really, there's, there's just no way. I'm sure that people who are in the movie business will tell you that unless you're in the movie business, there's no way to understand how many people actually contribute to a successful yep. movie. But a baseball team is the same way, that they're, they're just literally hundreds of people who contribute to what happened to a successful season. Uh, and, and there's, uh, there's no, uh, I, I'd have to write a book to explain that concept to the outside. Maybe I'll get that one done. Maybe not. Um, but there are just lots of little stuff, uh, that you learn from watching, uh, going to spring training and watching the practices before people get, before they start playing the game. Uh, the uh, one thing that I didn't know there's a sort of mythology uh, a sort of mythic status of scouting mm. uh, and people talk about scouts as if they were uh, as if they were uh, what do you call them? yogis yogis yeah or mystics and People in my profession sometimes write about scouts in a negative way yes. and a skeptical way. What I didn't understand is that the level at which a scout watches a game is just totally different from the level at which a reporter watches the game. Hmm. If if you're in a in the press box, people are paying attention to the game, yes, but they are also on their phones and on their computers and writing and talking and, and, you know, the game is, they're trying to catch the essence of the game. The scout is watching it second to second to second and, uh, and sees things, uh, on a level that a person who hasn't played and doesn't watch it at that level just can't get. And uh, I didn't have any understanding of that really when I entered the game. The um, and I, uh, I just basic stuff that I didn't know. For example, I didn't know that uh, pitchers use changeups to opposite side hitters. Like a right-hander would throw a changeup to you know right-hander threw a changeup fifteen percent of the time. It's mm-hmm. it's you know it's zero percent to a right-hander and forty percent to a lefty. The uh, I didn't know that. Uh, now we know that because now we have data. Now we have data, but we didn't have data in yeah. 2002 uh, like that. There were lots of things like that that I just didn't have any understanding of, and stuff that everybody in the room understood except me. Hmm. Uh, I, there's a couple of kind of pressing global baseball questions that I want to get to, right. but they're more forward spinning, so we'll save that for the end. I do want to jump into a couple of political things, and I want to start with, and Joe Posnanski wrote about this pretty recently. And it slayed me because I was not, and I read the new historical abstract. I have it on my shelf, just like the Hall of Fame book and all the every other book. Um, it's the Bill Jones new historical abstract, two thousand one, and you wrote about Rafael Palmeiro winning the Gold Glove, uh, and you talked about the idea of a very specific kind of plurality. And weird things can happen because if anybody's allowed to vote, and you don't need fifty one percent, weird things can happen. And you said that could lead to somebody like David Duke becoming president, or Warren Beatty becoming president, or Donald Trump becoming president. 
That was pretty interesting. So I guess what I'm wondering about is if that level of limited plurality is so dangerous, do we need to blow up our electoral system so that it can't or shouldn't happen? Again, whether or not you're for or against Trump, because it's not representative of the wishes of the people, or is this, oh, this is a system that we have and we'll go with it? Uh, I mean, I, I cited Trump because there had been talk about his running before. I, you know, I didn't. Still see. pretty good. <laughs> I didn't figure. I'm but watching for uh, for Warren Beatty. We'll see. The uh, uh, but you asked the right question. The uh, people assume that what had happened was uh, Rafael Palmero, who had hardly played first base at all. Mm-hmm. I think he played 15 games at first or something. Yeah, like I want to say 28, but yeah, not yeah. many. Yeah, he had not. He'd been he'd been a designated hitter all year. Somehow won the Gold Glove Award, uh, and we, and when that something like that happens, people will say those stupid voters, uh, the voters aren't paying attention. But that's not actually what happened. What actually happened is it's a badly designed system, mm. uh, in which uh, under certain conditions can lead to a sort of uh, a bizarre result, even though the voters. Took the issue seriously and did their research. The, uh, the I didn't did not realize at that time that the flaws in the national electoral system were as serious as they are. But that is the right question, not uh, how do we persuade people not to be um, not to be attracted to out of the mainstream candidates. I mean Reagan was an out of the mainstream candidate. There have been a lot of them out of the mainstream candidates. Right. So but but how do you fix the voting system yeah. so that it uh and the gold glove has pretty much fixed this voting system. Yep. That that would and that's right. Uh, again that's a surprise. One of the great surprises of my life is how easy it is to change the world. I mean and uh, you know I, mm-hmm. I used to just just you know fire random shots at people like the gold glove voters assuming the system would never change but it actually has changed. And, it, and that probably wouldn't happen now. Uh, but the, the national electoral, electoral system is also in need of work and in need of thought, and it's not something that people talk about. All the, the mountains of words about uh, about politics, what we really don't talk about is how do we fix the system so that we get more representative results. Hmm. So... Uh... Here is a tweet that you sent out recently, and this is where you talk about not sparring with people, and this ended up, this became a very controversial thing to say. Uh, August 5th, blaming Republicans for Trump is like blaming Poland for Adolf, he said. He invaded the party and took over. What were they supposed to do about it? So, here's the common rebuttal to this. That the GOP has certain policies that would seem to before Trump, that would seem to track a certain way. The voter suppression, one where voter ID, whatever one calls it, that seems to be a plank. That uh, sentiments against people of color, LGBT, so forth, comes out the same. That even when it came to this election, yes, there were other people out there running, but people ultimately jumped on board because they didn't want to split it. And so I suppose the way to phrase the question might be, is it the case that this guy came in and just, what a, what a cult of personality, this different guy? Or is he along the lines of a lot of some of the mainstream policies of the GOP? He's just much more boorish, much louder, much more combative than we've seen before. Well, 
um, almost every mainstream Republican condemned Trump uh, in 2016. Uh, you would be hard-pressed to find, well, no, that, that's an overstatement. There are, there are a handful of leading Republicans, Mike Huckabee, and... Uh, Chris Deacon went along with him after a while. Right, who went along with him, but almost all uh, condemned him. Uh, he won anyway. Mm -hmm. The uh, uh, I don't feel that it's fair or accurate uh, I'm not running down Trump, and the reason I'm not running down Trump is I respect his voters. Mm -hmm. He represented legitimate ideas that had been excluded from the mainstream. He advocated those ideas. Those ideas turned out to be powerful, and he won, and I'm okay with it. Uh, uh, I don't agree with a lot of those ideas, right. and I don't think Trump is has characteristics we want in a president, but I don't blame the Republican Party for him. Uh, I think that the Republican Party also tried to exclude those ideas. Yes. The Republican Party also tried to beat back that, that, uh, the ideas that he represented, and they failed. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that he, I don't think he's advance, advancing traditional Republican ideas. I, I don't buy it. What was interesting too about the ideas that you tied it, you know, it's ended up being manifesting itself in race resentment. There have been other issues that have cropped up, but it was interesting to look at the other side and see the rise of Sanders. And I can remember when Sanders did his, you could barely call it a press conference, saying, I'm going to run for president. There were five people there. I mean, right. there was nobody there. The guy nearly won the nomination. Right. Trump at least had a cult of personality, was a TV star, what have you. We had this following. Sanders was this obscure Jewish fellow from Brooklyn running in Vermont on a socialist platform. Right. Not that far away. So there was definitely, was, is, I mean, Sanders might run again, you right. know? And uh, I found that interesting. I just read a New Republic piece. It was about 5,000 words about socialism. I read it while I was on the plane today. Nobody's writing 5,000 words about socialism two years ago. Something has changed. People are dissatisfied. The manufacturing jobs that you knew you could get with a high school education in 1977, because we had unions, because of a lot of other reasons, do not exist now, and people are really pissed off about it. That's a lot of people. Yeah, that's, I agree with that. Yeah. And uh, not to turn it into a political podcast, but the um, uh, at the core of this is the notion that uh, are the notions that open borders are good and that uh, free trade helps everybody. Yeah, uh, free trade doesn't help everybody. Free trade helps some people and hurts other people. Mm. Uh, and the, uh, uh, I remember vi vividly mm. in the 1990s when NAFTA was passed that, that, that a, uh, a Southern Senator voted against it and, and, uh, uh, asked about it. He said, well, we have a stupid party and a greedy party. And once in a while they get together and do something stupid and greedy. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and I didn't agree with him at the time. At the time, I majored in economics in college. I was taught that free trade is good for everybody. And I, I believed it. But it isn't true. I mean, uh, uh, free trade opens doorways so that things move around so fast that 
people get left behind. Mm -hmm. uh, so the political system needed a realization of that reality, and and we we finally hit that. Uh, open borders are great. You know, you're a Canadian. I don't want to. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you keep that fact secret. <laughs> the uh, but yeah, you know, it gets known. <laughs> if, if if you were from Mexico, it, it would be great if sure. someone who grew up in Mexico City could follow the same career path that you have and become uh, the whatever they want, uh, whatever they want in the United States yeah. and Mexico as you have in. United States and Canada. That would be a great thing. Mm -hmm. Open borders are great. Open borders also contain dangers, and and uh, open borders also cause things to happen that you would rather not to happen. We we weren't dealing with that in in 2016. The whole political establishment was united against ideas that unfortunately were true. Yeah, uh, and so we've been forced to to deal with. The other one I wanted to ask you about, uh, a really interesting essay that you wrote, How the Democrats Can Win Kansas. And uh, I've read What's the Matter with Kansas, one of the seminal political books. Kansas was a bastion of liberalism back in the day. It is decidedly not now. It's, right. you know, Lawrence, there's a nice contingent, but not in the state in general. And you're talking about universal health care as being a suboptimal idea within the context of this. And I don't even necessarily... Not sure I want to debate universal health care per se. I just want to establish, put some, posit some, some theory. So I think that whatever side of the spectrum one is on, it's pretty safe to say that this healthcare system is not perfect. If somebody's getting screwed or it's too expensive, there are inefficiencies, we're getting poorer health outcomes for more money than, I don't know, most other countries. Right. So not so much from a universal healthcare standpoint, but from a math and strategy standpoint, which frankly I think is where you and I tend to do well. How do we get at this? Maybe universal, maybe single payer isn't the right approach, but in a, an environment in which you have certain incentives for physicians, for pharmaceutical companies, for the insurers, for consumers, and the fact that we've had a certain structure the whole time and we've resisted Canada and Denmark and so forth, how do we get there to make the outcome at least somewhat better than it's been? I don't. I, I don't know. I don't have any understanding. So what? Then what? I mean, then how do we know it's not universal? Then? The uh, I. I don't. It's just the, not a good. It's not politically expedient. Is what you're saying. Well, I wouldn't vote for it. Uh, but why not? Uh, I, I believe the mistake we have made is is uh, uh, is creating too many doorways, okay. too many structures. The uh, uh, and that we would, uh, but but I mean this this issue is over my head. Uh, I, I'm Mind lost you, by the way. <laughs> I'm lost in it, and you know, okay, I wouldn't vote for universal health care. However, uh, you know, I would have voted for Bernie. Uh, it, it was Bernie against against Trump. I sure, would have voted for Bernie. You know, you live with what I mean. I'm I'm 67. I'm on Medicare. It seems to work for me. Yeah. The uh, uh, so I don't know. That's fair. Um, few more. I wanted to ask you. We're going to transition since we're doing Kansas. We got to talk a little KU hoops. We got to talk college basketball. Right. I have had the great privilege. I've, I've been able to interact with you socially a couple of times, and one of them was watching a college basketball game with you and Rob in March, and it was a KU game, and 
I, I don't know you that well, but I'm guessing there aren't that many things that you like more than a really entertaining KU team. Um, is this just a function of being in and around Lawrence? Did you grow up a basketball junkie? What is it that gets in people's souls that rock chalk is just so... It's beyond just, oh, I like this guy. He's good at dribbling. It, it seems to just permeate and become this source of great, great pleasure for people who are in it. Yeah. I mean, college basketball is a great game. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, being in Lawrence is the answer to it because there is almost no one in Lawrence who doesn't get caught up in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... Uh, I think you're going to Boston later tonight. You're in Bo- Boston is really into baseball. And yeah. there was in 2004 when we were trying to win the World Series, you could go into any coffee shop, any restaurant, any place of business, and people were talking about the Red Sox. And I, I remember, you know, sitting in a restaurant and there's, uh, 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 behind me where I could hear it, there's a table of three teenage girls and they're talking about the Red Sox and another time being there and there's a table full of 80-year-old women and they're talking about the Red wow. Sox. Uh, uh, Lawrence is like that about about uh, KU basketball. Uh, but I also, I, I was uh, loved basketball not, not in the same way that I love baseball. Uh, not a, in a, the same analytical way, hmm. but I love I love basketball from an early age. Uh, we had in my hometown we had a little uh, uh, badly built uh, gymnasium uh, with wooden seats, but it was like Allen Fieldhouse in that you got in there and the noise bounced back at you off the seats and back at you and and caught you up in the flow of the excitement of the games. Uh, and uh, the, uh, I, I mean, uh, it's a different experience in baseball, but it, it's, to me, it's matchless. Uh, I'm a big fan as well. Uh, since Not this is, out, if you were to. Uh, well, I, I don't really have one team because I'm Canadian, so I tended to glom onto whatever the good story was. When Seth Curry went nuts, I was following Davidson. When Adam Morrison went nuts, I was following Gonzaga. So I get the luxury of, of, of having a little bit of buffet, which is really nice. But there have been KU teams. I mean, I can remember when Pierce played. Not only that, I can remember when Pierce got drafted 10th, and I thought, this guy is, and I'm not a, a savant in basketball. I played and whatever. But in this case, I was so confident that Paul Pierce was going to be a super-duper star. I just could not understand why nine guys were taken before him. It was one of the most puzzling things I'd ever seen because he was so athletic but also really smart beyond his years and in certain things. And there's certain KU players. I remember Danny Manning. Danny Manning was electrifying. He was 6'10". Right. You know, those are just some really fun KU teams. Right. That's right about Paul Pierce. It was puzzling at the time. Also, another thing about almost everybody in, in – uh, in Lawrence became a, a sort of Celtics fan, and, and hmm. there are other K, a lot of there are like KU players on every team in the yeah, NBA. Yeah, basically, I mean, lots of these guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but uh, for some reason, Pierce was the one that people always followed and always rooted for. And it is puzzling, and you wonder how people didn't get that. Uh, you look back at it in retrospect. I don't. It may be a, a bit of a leap, but here's something I've never understood: the Kansas City Chiefs have never in their history, in their entire history, yeah. uh, drafted and developed a starting quarterback in the NFL. Uh, wow. Whole, <laughs> never. I'm the, thinking about it a little bit. Yeah. The, uh, and and uh, it would. I do not understand what... The, this year they finally drafted 
Watson, right? Yeah. They, they tried, tried to pick somebody. They, uh, but I don't understand. They, they've tried for 40 years to win championships with, uh, quarterbacks that were done somewhere else. Yep. Or quarterbacks that were rejected somewhere else. Uh, and, uh, and make the rest of the team really strong. I, I don't get it. I mean, how, how do you not understand, how do you not understand that in order to have a, uh, your maximum chance of winning the Super Bowl, you need to come up with, you know, a John Elway type. It just, it doesn't make any sense. They're playing a long game here, Bill. They're 50 years away from having, you know, it's going to be Joe Montana's great, great, great grandkid. Uh, a couple more I, I wanted to ask you, just because this is the Venn diagram of Venn diagrams. For me, uh, you were a guest on The Simpsons, which is, I'm exactly the right age to love The Simpsons. I have exactly the right sense of humor. I mean, everybody loves The Simpsons, I guess, to a certain extent, but it was, it was my Bible. I met my wife. I basically charmed her by quoting Simpsons lines. And we were in college, and I'm like, this is the woman for me. And we've now been married a long time. Uh, did that... Resonate for you? Did that mean anything for you? Or was it just like, oh, that sounds fun? Because I, I just want to know what it's like to be animated, to be on that show. That is just the, the dream of all dreams for me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. The, uh, it was what, so, you know, you get the opportunities to do things that, and, you know, sometimes they're disappointing and sometimes they work out perfectly. That, that one, yeah, you know, the entire amount of time I put into being on the show is, you know, less than a day's work. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was, it was just a, a sweet spot. It just, it just connected. Did you have people come up to you, whatever, different generations and someone say, <gasps> that thing? I mean, did you get that kind of response? Yeah, for, you know, it's been years now since that happened, but yeah, people still talk about it. Tremendous. Um, so I want to also, a couple more, I want to ask you about crime. You've got a new book coming out called The Man from the Train, September 19th, co-written with your daughter, right? right that's right. That's already the dream. That's phenomenal. Uh, but just on a general level, how did you become so interested in that? I mean, I guess crime is inherently interesting, but you truly are going to the map for this thing at your point at this point in your career. You're saying, "Oh, I'm going to sink my teeth into it. I'm going to make it an enterprise." Uh, oh, I'm not trying to make it an enterprise. I'm just, oh, okay. Yeah, but um, uh, the uh, I I grew up sort of disconnected from the world, hmm. and what I had that connected me to the world was the newspapers. And a newspaper has baseball and crime stories and, you know, Dear Abby and, uh, um, political columns. And, and I was interested in all the things that made up the newspaper when I was eight years old. Hmm. Crime stories were one of the most popular, one of the most prominent. So I was always interested in them. And I still am. And, and I will confess that Rob suggested that I ask you this question. He said, what would you ask, Bill? And, and, and this is a great question, I think. Um, no, he talked, a lousy question. <laughs> lousy question. He said, you almost asked the question in advance, or answered the question in advance, which is about newspapers, and now we have newspapers on the internet. We've had it for a while, but it's so searchable. And we had microfiche before, but I mean, you could pull up almost anything you want so quickly. And from what Rob was saying, you and your daughter really sunk your teeth into stuff from that source material, going beyond crime, do you think there's an untapped amount of knowledge here that we can get to with political knowledge or baseball or anything else that, yes, we've had newspapers on the internet for a while, but the extreme Googleability of things could lead to areas of knowledge that we 
never would have thought of before, or am I over no, I think that's right. Saying that I think that's right. Yeah, I, 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 I absolutely believe that's true. That that uh, uh, they they will enable outsiders to create areas of knowledge very much the way that I did in the seventies uh, about everything. But more, but in an easier way than literally lugging the baseball encyclopedia and a bunch of index cards with you every day. That's right. Um, okay, so the two more questions. One I wanted to ask was about this is the broad baseball question. So you've you've written talked about the fact that aesthetically we're not in the best place right now. That there are so many strikeouts. That's sure. not the game that you grew up with. That's not the game that I grew up with. Do you think we will reach a point at which Rob Manfred and Tony Clark and people like that will say, this is no good. We're going to lose our audience here because people aren't going to watch this. We, you know, they would, they're more interested in Ricky Henderson, well-rounded, wonderful players who do everything. This is not good baseball. Everybody's going to go and watch basketball and football. Or do you think that people are just going to go along with it? Because it feels like that could be something that could jeopardize the game. Uh, I, I think baseball is, is much more in control of its product now than they were much, much more than they were 30 or 40 years They're ago. They're juicing the baseball right now, so I would say yes. <laughs> I, I make no bones about it. Ben Lindbergh, Rob Arthur, the data's out there, yeah. Yeah, well, but, uh, uh, baseball would be a better game than it, than it is if, uh, a hundred years ago, baseball had decided you can't just use whatever equipment you want to use. You can use the equipment that we provide. Mm. Uh, the, uh, but, we didn't. In essence, baseball is, is like a... Can you imagine what college basketball would be like if, if people could bring their own basketball? Yeah. Uh, the uh, the uh, Basketball, the only real equipment is the shared equipment of the basketball. In baseball, there's all this sort of individual equipment, and the evolution of the individual equipment drives the game. And for a hundred years, it just drove it wherever it wanted to go. I think we're finally reaching the point of saying, where do we want it to go? Uh, not to hammer on Bowie Kuhn, but Bowie Kuhn didn't have a clue uh, how to take control of the game and say, what do we want the game to be like, and, and how would we, what sort of game do we want? Uh, Manfred hasn't, we haven't reached the point of saying, we're, we're, we're going to fix these things, we're going to make them better, but he has certainly has reached the point, and Bud Selig reached the point, mm-hmm. of saying, what kind of game do we want, and how do we get there? And that's I'm, I'm optimistic about that. Because they're bringing it up, because it's in the public discourse now. Because they're at least, they at least know that there's a problem. They're, they're at least focused on the fact that there's a problem. I have to say, you know, I've never talked to you at this length. You're much, not much, you're somewhat more optimistic than I expected. Not that I thought that you were a pessimist, but you've talked about things change. Inevitably things change. Baseball's going to change for the better. Things are going to change for the better. The world's going to change for the better. It's very edifying. I don't really have a question out of this, but I'm just like, I feel better after this conversation than I did before this conversation, I suppose. Well, but, but you, I mean, people think that the only thing that changes baseball is the rules. Hmm. But if you think about it, the rules about relievers are exactly the same now as they were in 1970, yes. which is 100 years ago. Uh, you could, teams could have done then what they do now. They just didn't. In 1917, there, the, there was less than one reliever used per game. Now it's... I don't know, several. Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, and it's, it's a, you know, a 400% increase or something with no change in the rules. At no point there did anyone say, is this in the best interest of the game? 
at no point in 1925 or 1935 or 1955 or 1975 or 1995 did anyone say, is it really in the best interest of the game to allow the number of, of relievers to just keep increasing, keep increasing, keep increasing? Well, we've finally reached that point. Hmm. Uh, so that's a good thing. And then the last question is uh, something that I ask of every guest, is I always ask the guests for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom. Uh, I meet you in a bar, maybe we're watching a KU game, and I say, I'm Jonah, and you say, you're Bill, and I say, oh, here's what I'm all about. I believe that there's uh, a pot of gold at the end of every rainbow, whatever it is. Um, I, but I have a personal philosophy. It could be something very serious, it could be something very light, but it drives you, it's an elemental part of your DNA. If you were trying to sum up yourself and you met somebody, you'd say, well, this is what I'm all about. Oh, the, uh, uh, the immense power and ignorance. Uh, mm. uh, ignorance is an inexhaustible resource uh, because there is so much of it, and there there is an immense. Your ability to change the world is a thousand times larger than a young person imagines it to be. A young person thinks this is just the world it is, and I can't change it. But every person who lives, and I don't mean that literally, somebody who passes away at the age, but uh, every human being changes the world in some permanent way. Uh, and that's what leads to the, over the course of centuries, leads to the fantastic complexity of the world and, and the fact that we don't understand it. But everybody should understand that the world 500 years from now will be different than it would have been because of you. Uh, and uh, you, you can't even avoid it. It's your fate to change the world. So think about how you're changing it. Uh, good stuff. I like that very much. And uh, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, the book coming out September 19th, the day before my birthday. The Man from the Train, The Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer Mystery, which I'm excited to check out. Uh, writing, collaborating. I have young kids. I can't come collaborating with your kid. has got to be the coolest thing in the world. So I'm very excited about that as well. Thank you very much. And how old are you kids? I have twins who are almost eight years old, and uh, writing is a, <laughs> can be a miserable and solitary pursuit, so I'm going to pursue it push it to something else, and we'll see how it goes. But uh, Bill James, thank you very, very much for your time. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you.